is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak they of the world, and the world heareth them, but we are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for the presence that's been here tonight. God, we thank you, Lord, for the service, the worship, the word that went forth this morning, God. And Lord, we ask now, believing that you are here, that you are working, that you would minister, God, through your word, that you would speak to us, God, Lord, that you would work in our lives, that you would perfect us in your sight, Lord. Use your word, God, to work in our lives, to change us into that beautiful bride of Christ, Lord. And God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My title tonight is Overcoming the Wicked One. Overcoming the Wicked One. Verse 4 of our text is arguably the most quoted yet least understood verse in the Bible. We've seen it on bumper stickers. We've heard people say it time and time again. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But the context that surrounds this verse is, shows us that the people who say that phrase don't often really know exactly what they're talking about. What John is referring to here in this passage is the spiritual authority that is resident within the believer. And this is an echo of the statement that Paul made in 2 Corinthians 4 and 7 when he said that the surpassing power, the power, the treasure of the gospel, that, that God put that in an earthen vessel. He did that to show that, that the power is all of him. And this power that John and that Paul wrote about, it, it provides us with great victory and that's where the misconception begins to drive a false interpretation. So many have used this passage to promote health and wealth and prosperity and, and things along that line, but that's not what John is talking about. In fact, whenever he opens up this book, he says, My brothers and my fellow partakers in the tribulation I write to you. That's how he opens up the book of Revelation. And so we would say, John, if, you're, if greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, and, and you're an overcomer, and, and you have this great power, then why are you a partaker in tribulation? You see, whenever we think of overcoming the world, we think of good things happening in our lives. We think about pay raises and, and nice houses and nice cars, and that's what overcoming looks like and what we think about, but this isn't even remotely close to what the Bible is telling us that overcoming really means. In fact, Jesus speaks in direct opposition to this in John 16. He said, Behold, the hour cometh and now is that you will be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. Listen to this part. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. You see, he's promised to us victory, but he's also promised to us tribulation. Jesus speaks clearly, in the world you will have tribulation. He also suffered tribulation, but you hear that part that he said, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. He has overcome the world, but overcoming does not mean that life is easy or carefree. 
And John continues on this teaching in John, 1 John 5 and 4. He says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Three times he said there overcometh the world. Both John and Jesus and Paul all had this reference to overcoming the world. What were they talking about? They were talking about a system of darkness that Satan has established in this earth. And that's what they were saying, that you were going to be able to overcome the wicked one. You are going to be able to overcome the world. And so we have an adversary that is against us, but John tells us whenever we have a revelation of who Jesus is, guess what? We have the victory. We are overcomers. And Paul, he even further drives point this home in Romans 12. He said, you're going to overcome evil with good. So the answer to the question of what are we going to overcome is clearly answered. It's Satan. It's, it's the wicked darkness of this world. That is what we are going to overcome. But, but let me tell you about the Bible, what the Bible says about the rewards of the overcomers. Let's, let's look at Revelation chapter 2. And if you write in your Bibles... Just write the promise of the overcomer. And let's just walk through Revelation 2 and into, verse, into chapter 3 and look and see what the promise to the overcomer is. The overcomer in Revelation 2 and 7, the Bible says, will eat of the tree of life. Revelation 2 and 11 says the overcomer will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2 and 17 says the overcomer will receive a new name in heaven. 2 and 16 says the overcomer will have power over the nations. 3 and 5 says the overcomer's name will remain in the book of life. And 3 and 12 says the overcomer will be a pillar in the temple of God and he shall not be moved. What a promise it is. What a promise it is to be an overcomer. Of Christ, And to see what he's going to do for us, to see those things that, that if you're filled with the Spirit here tonight, you can look in those verses and say, that was written to me. My name is not going to be marked out of the book of life. I'm going to be made a pillar in the temple of God. Those are things that you can hold on to whenever you're going through the storms and the trials that we just got done singing about, is that I'm an overcomer. God has a great promise for me. So the biblical concept of overcoming has much to do with spiritual authority and very little to do with a life of ease. Those verses there in Revelation show how important it is that we must be counted as an overcomer. To overcome sin and to overcome the wicked one is going to lead to an earthly life that is full of dangers and toils and snares. But it's not the earthly life that we're worried about. It's the eternal one that where the victory is going to come into fruition. So if you're walking through those dark and, and trying times, you can claim those promises to say, God, you know what? You've got something better for me on the other side. I can look and like we like to say, to the end of the book and I can see that I have the victory. I can see that this light momentary affliction, it means nothing in the weight of eternity to be able to spend the rest of eternity in his presence. So just this, this light momentary affliction, it's nothing 
is nothing. So we must overcome. The, the only other option is death and the hell. And, and thankfully, the Bible is very clear about how we overcome you know, that's, that's the great part of the Bible. It's got lots of great instructions for us, but the thing is, is you have to use them. You know, you begin to, we're getting into the Christmas season, and so we're buying all these toys and stuff for the kids, and, and you know how the men are. They like to take the things out and just, we don't need the instructions, we'll put it together, and by the time you get done with it, you think, I should have looked at the instructions to begin with. That's often the quandary that I get into whenever I try to put those things together. But, but the Bible is very clear. It's very plain about what we have to do. And so the question I ask you tonight is, are you going to follow the divine instructions or, or are you going to look to someone who has already conquered death in the grave and look to his model of what he has to say of how to overcome or, or will you try to do it your own way? In your own way, it, it will never work because, because flesh can never overcome the wicked one. You have to have the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for you on Calvary. You have to have that power in your life to be able to overcome Satan. So if you keep these commands, if you keep these promises, guess what? All those things that we read in Revelation 2 and 3, those are yours. Those are things that you can put claim, that you can hold on to to say that those are for me. But we've got to follow what the Bible says. So I want to give you three keys tonight on how to overcome the wicked one. The first one that we see is found in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Brother Chad spoke of it this morning. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I want to read those verses to your hearing tonight. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your learns girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation. Salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. If you're going to overcome the wicked one, you're going to have to wake up and understand that you're in a battle. You're in a battle for your soul. Every day of your life, you're in a battle for your soul. You've got to live with that mentality that you're in a war for your soul and in the war for your soul for your family's souls. And I think that Satan's greatest deception in the American church is to lull us into spiritual lethargy. And I want to, I want to, I want to speak against the American idea that we've been brought up into. We are so blessed as a nation to have the freedom of religion, to be able to join together and worship God as we see that he's mandated in his word. But, but there's also some things that, that, that having grown up in, in this country that have caused us, that have, have messed up our way of thinking 
And so in other places of the world, they have witch doctors and they, they drop their hexes and their curses and all these things. And, and dad came back from Ghana and told the stories about the, the woman who was asleep and woke up in the middle of the night and there was a snake on the ground talking to her. And she took her Bible and, and chopped off the head of that snake. If things like that were happening all the time here in America, I bet you that there would be some prayer that was going on in our lives. But you know what? Satan knows that all he has to do is to just get us busy. So instead of spending time in prayer, we're spending time on social media. And instead of, of reading the word of the God, we are binge-watching the favorite show that's out. And instead of fasting, we're going to the newest restaurant in town. So there's all these things. Satan doesn't have to have the witch doctors out and, and doing these things. No, he just says to keep us busy with chasing after the American dream. And he dangles it in front of us. But I ask you tonight, do you want the amenities afforded to you by an American lifestyle? Or do you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What's more important to you? Is it a corruptible crown or an incorruptible crown? You're in a battle for your soul. You're in a battle for your soul. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 19, as, as, as we see the letters that were written to the church, this letter to the church in Laodicea, you might as well just change it to the letter of the church in America. Because listen to what he says, starting in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen to 17. You say, I am rich, I am prospered, I need nothing, but you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent that sounds like the American church we're not hot we're not cold we're just lukewarm we're just living life we're, we're rich we're prospered we have no need for God because because we we think that we're self-sufficient but but guess what guess what God sees he sees a wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked church. That's what God sees whenever he sees those who are neither hot nor cold. They're just living their, their best life now. They're just living and not taking thought of what God has for them and the things that God wants to do in them and the fact that there is an eternity and there's a judgment throne that we're going to stand before one day and they're too busy with Netflix and Facebook and Instagram and all these things that bombard our minds on a day-by-day -day basis. And guess what God is saying? He's saying, wake up, church. Wake up, church. Hear my voice. I'm trying to speak to you. I'm trying to speak to you, but there's so many things that you're letting just crowd your mind to where that you're not thinking about what I want to do in your life. You're never going to overcome the wicked one until you arise from your slumber and you realize that you're in a battle. That you're in a battle and you've got to put that armor on. You've got to fight with everything that's inside of you. We have the greatest power inside of us to overcome the adversary, but we don't use it because we're asleep at the wheel. 
But guess what? All of a sudden, a, a, a trial arises and, and, and we lose our faith in God because we thought that God was just there to, to, to give us an overcoming life, to let us enjoy those things. And so we lose out on God because we don't have faith that he can get us through the difficult times. I'm convinced that God uses trials to awaken us. I call it the Canaan syndrome. Remember what God did with, with Israel and they got into Canaan and everything was nice and, and everything was great. It was finally going good. And what happened? They turned their back on God because the Bible says that they had fields that they didn't plant. There were houses that were there that they didn't build. They enjoyed all of these blessings that God had made for them, just like we have here today. And, and they turned their back on God. And so God had to use all of these heathen nations to bring them into captivity so they would finally look back up and say, Oh God, it was you there all the time. I forgot about you because I had everything taken care of. I didn't let my prayer life continue continue on because everything was going good. I didn't feel like that I needed you, but God all the time was there and all the time wanted to work in their lives. And so our idolatry, it doesn't look exactly what Israel's did, but, but we found another source for happiness. We grow lukewarm because we have forgotten that there is a daily battle that we're in. Satan doesn't want to stir you up. Because he knows that if he does, it'll turn you back to your Savior. So he just wants to let you sleep. He just wants to let you just, just mosey on in life and never pay attention to what God is wanting to do. Please hear me tonight. Don't let the distractions take you away from what God has for you. In, in Revelation 2, we see that, that, that they were writing to the church in Ephesus who Paul talked to about the armor of God and and. and the Bible says that Ephesus had turned away from their first love. Why? What happened there? Was it maybe that they had forgotten that they were in a battle? Was it maybe that they had just let that armor sitting on the side, that they weren't paying attention to the battle that was going on? That armor was rusty and it had decayed because they hadn't been using it. And so then in Revelation we see the angel saying, Ephesus, turn back to your first love. Turn back to the things that God wants to do for you. We cannot go away from our first love. You cannot overcome if you are not equipped for the battle. The belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. You cannot overcome if you are not using these in battle. But there's a beautiful promise that's in verse 18 of Ephesians 6. It says that if we pray in the spirit, that we're going to have the victories. You see, the Holy Ghost is linked up very closely with the armor of God. That connection there is vital. That's how we have the victory. That is how our armor is maintained, is through the Spirit working inside of us. That's why you must be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the only way for you to overcome. That's the only way for your armor to be maintained, is if you're filled with the Spirit, that you're praying in the Spirit, that the Spirit is working in your life. So if you want to overcome, you've got to put on the full armor of God. And there's a distinct mindset that accompanies the soldier. They don't care about the latest buy one, get one from Publix. They don't care about who won the game. 
They don't care about all the fleeting things of this world. Look at what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I guarantee you on D-Day, on the beaches in Normandy, that nobody cared who won the World Series that year. I guarantee you that none of them cared about what the... what was going on back home. All they cared about was getting over those beachheads and, and, and securing them for the Allied forces. That was the focus that was in their mind. But we've got, we've got to make sure that that focus is within us because if we don't, guess what? 1 Peter 5 and 8 is where we find our second key to overcoming the wicked one. He says there, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He's walking around seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, he's going to make you perfect. He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you. And he's going to settle you. We can only overcome whenever we remove the intoxicating influences of the world from our mind. That word there, it, it gives us that, that context of both being sober-minded in regards to intoxicating substances and also to sinful passions. And sin can cloud your mind and lead you to do things that are irrational and that cause you to go in direct conflict with God's holiness. Look at David, the man after God's own heart, and he had that sin to get into his mind. And it so clouded him that he committed adultery and he murdered a man. Why? Because he wasn't being sober. He wasn't being vigilant. He wasn't in the battle. He didn't have his armor on. And so we've got to be sober. We've got to make sure that we protect our minds. That helmet of salvation has to always be there to guard us against the tricks and the traps of the enemy. That's what Jesus said in Luke 21. You need to watch yourself lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that day may come upon you suddenly like a trap. You better watch yourself. Why? Because if you don't, that sober mind is going to be taken away and drunkenness is going to be there. And you can think about the, the ills of alcohol and the decisions that people have made while under the influence of a substance like that. Just nothing good ever happens whenever you allow yourself to go there. So you need to guard your mind. You need to watch yourself lest you fall into evil lest you fall into evil. If we're not always watching, then our lives can become weighed down with sin. And Jesus is telling us that, that the rapture is going to come like a trap unless we're watching, unless we're always heeding the word of God. Sin has the effect of causing our minds to drift into places where we lose our vigilance, where we lose that clear-headed thought of what we're supposed to be doing. Sin, it disrupts our mind. But once again, you've been filled with the Spirit. And that assists you in clear thinking. That assists you in to be able to guard your mind and to be able to see the traps that are set there. And lions, they set those traps for their prey. 
And when they least suspect it, the lion attacks. That's the tactic that Satan uses to attempt to destroy our souls. This is why we have to be men and women who are full of the Spirit. We can see those hidden attacks whenever we are looking in the Spirit, whenever we're walking in the Spirit every day. And how does this happen? It happens because the Holy Ghost equips us with spiritual discernment. So men, you must be filled with the Spirit so that you can have this discernment, so that you can be a watchman for your family. You're the final authority for things that come into your homes. And and if you allow the things of the enemy to come into your home, it can wreak havoc in your family. Women, you must be filled with the Spirit so that you can have this discernment because God has called you to raise and nurture your children in a way that places their hope and their trust on God. Without this firm foundation, your children, they stand no chance. Young people, you must be filled with the Spirit because we live in an untoward generation. We live in a time now where evil is called good and good is called evil. The thinking is totally backwards. And if you sit in your classrooms for hours on end and hear those things bombard your mind, if you're not filled with the Spirit, you're going to follow right in the track of those things that have been told to you. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. It's never been more important for us to make sure that our children from an early age walk in the way that God has called for us. Deuteronomy 6, you need to write it on the door of your house, on the post, everything. You need to have it always in front of them that our God is one Lord, that you need to love Him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. Our children are incredibly valuable investments that God has placed into our lives. We've got to make sure that they're being raised up in a way that their minds are guarded to where that even at a young age that they can have a level of discernment in their lives to say, you know what, this isn't right. This doesn't feel right to me. That's good. That's God working in them. John raises the issue of spiritual discernment in our text in verse 1 whenever he says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. But try the Spirit, whether they are of God, because there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. You cannot know the voice of a false prophet unless you have been filled with the Spirit. You'll never know the difference. You'll never know the difference. And that false prophet will take you down a path that you don't want to go down. You've got to be filled with the Spirit so that you know, so that your mind is in tune with the Lord. And whenever you hear something that's out of tune, you say, no, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how I need to live my life. I've got to be filled with the Spirit. You can't afford to be callous with your soul. You're going to live on forever somewhere So your mind always has to be focused. It always has to be sober. It always has to be vigilant. It always has to be thinking about the battle that is at hand. Trust me, your enemy is focused on your destruction. You've got to be focused as well. So Paul, he tells us to suit up with the armor of God. Peter, he tells us that we need to sober ourselves. And now let's look to John for our final instruction on how to overcome. It's in 1 John 2 and 14. He says, I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome 
the wicked one. John shows us that overcoming the wicked one is contingent on the word of God abiding in us. That connection is clear. It can't be disputed. It's plain. You're not going to overcome unless the word of God is abiding in you. Modern translations, instead of using the word abide, they use words like remain or stay or continue. But to just get a brief dose of the word on Sunday and on Wednesday, it's not enough. You've got to abide in the word. You've got to continue in the word. You have to remain in the word. You have to stay in the word. That soldier-like focus that Paul talked about, it has to be in your life that I've got to stay in this word. I've got to be made pure by this word. I've got to have that word opening up my heart and searching things that aren't pleasing to God and taking them out so that I can one day stand before God holy and blessed. You've got to stay in the Word. And there are a million and one things that are vying for your attention today. But you've got to push them to the side. And you've got to remain in the Word. Remember that the Word of God is our only offensive weapon against the enemy. Remember what Jesus did. Matthew 4. Three times Jesus came against Satan and was tempted. And three times Jesus answered with Scripture from Deuteronomy. You need to know your Bible so well that whenever you come into a moment of temptation that the first thing that pops into your mind is a Bible verse. Because that is what's going to turn the enemy around. There was nothing that the devil said back to Jesus because he knew that that, that was it for him. He had to move on to something different. It's the greatest power that we have against the enemy and yet so many times we leave it sitting on a shelf or now we say the app not pulled up on your phone. We leave it in a spot where that we're not using it, and that's the one thing that you can use to fight against the enemy. All those pieces of armor, those defend you, but that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that is the weapon that you use to battle against the enemy. And so it is that that is the weapon that Satan fears, and yet that's the weapon that we use the least. You can't just read it every now and then. You've got to build a Bible into your mind. Let me say that again. You need to build a Bible into your mind. So one day, God forbid, if, if, this, if this is outlawed and, and we, can't, we can't have our Bibles and they confiscate them all and they throw us into prison, then you have that Bible inside of your mind and you can still rest and trust on the foundation of the Word of God. So that whenever you fall into temptation and it comes against you, that that word is so clearly imprinted on your mind that you can go against the enemy. The word, it's got to be like second nature to us. That's what's going to keep you. That's what's going to keep you. Don't miss that. Because the Bible says that we need to abide in the word, but the word is also going to abide in us. It's going to keep us. John 15. Let's look at John 15. One of our favorite chapters in the Bible. John 15, the, about the true vine. I want to read verses 1 through 11 to you. It says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, so that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me 
and I and you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words in you, you will ask what you want and it shall be done for you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit so shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you so that your joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Look at what abiding in Christ Abiding in his word. Look at what it does to you. Do you underline? Underline these. This is what God does for you if you abide in him. Verse 1, he's going to be your caretaker. He's going to take care of you. He's going to work in your life. Verse 2, he's going to prune you to help you to bear fruit. It might hurt temporarily, but there's going to be growth that's going to take place. Verse 3, if you abide in him, he's going to cleanse you. You. He's going to make you pure and holy. And in this world that we live in where the things of, of just common decency have just gone by the wayside and we feel sometimes so dirty from the interactions that we have in the daily world for God to say that if you abide in me that I'm going to cleanse you, how comforting that is. Verse 4, he says that he will give us the spiritual nutrients that we need to bear fruit. You're not going to be able to bear fruit of your own. You've got to abide in him so that he can give you those things so that you can bear fruit in his kingdom. Verse 6, if you abide in him, he's going to keep you from his judgment. And when you begin to consider the greatness of God and the wrath of God and the things that he has done to those who have worked evil in the past, what a great promise. If you abide in him, he's going to spare you from his judgment. In verse 7, he says that he's going to grant us divine favor. If you abide in me, you will ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. That doesn't mean that, that God's like the, the, the Pez candy dispenser and you hit the button and the candy pops out for these, these little things that we want. But guess what? If you abide in him, the things that you want are going to be different. The things as you begin to mature, whenever, whenever you're a child, think about what do you want? You want a matchbox car. Then they grow up a little bit older and they, they begin to, oh, I, I, want, a, I want an iPad. I, I want... I want these bigger and better things. The more that you mature in God, whenever we first begin to work and, and, and God begins to work in our lives, we want these things that are temporary and fleeting and they don't really matter. But whenever we begin to mature in Christ, guess what? Our wants become different. And instead of wanting a new car, no, we, we want to be holy as He is holy. We want to have a, a deeper prayer life. We want to have more consecration in our lives. What's happening? God is causing us to become mature in him he's feeding us we're growing and now he's giving us the things that we want why because we want things that please and honor God verse 8 if we abide in him he makes us his disciples 
He makes us followers of him. If we abide in him, verse 9, he loves us. His love is granted down to us. The love of God wraps us in his arms. Verse 11, if we abide in him, he gives us full joy. And you can, I, we, we see it every day in the hospital, and it's every, every patient that we take care of, we see on the, on the assessment, it's everyone has been diagnosed with depression. It's just, I mean, it's everyone, it seems. And what does God say here? He says that I'm going to give you full joy. I'm going to put that joy inside of your heart that can never be matched. Joy that is not dependent on what's happened to you last week or, or the things that you walked through, the things that happened. I'm going to give you a joy that keeps you even in the midst of times where you would say, how are you joyful in this time? Because I'm abiding in God. I'm abiding in Him. He's keeping me. He's helping me to grow. He's letting me bear fruit in Him. He has given me a complete and a full joy. Why would anyone want, not want these benefits? Those are promises that we have. We're going to overcome if we abide in his word. I'm going to say it again. You need to build a Bible into your mind so that whenever the adversary comes against you, your sword has been sharpened and it's ready for battle. You don't have to go against the enemy with something that you've thought up, something that you have to try to be cute and go against. No, you can bring out this powerful word of God and say, you know what? I've been abiding in him. I've been spending time in his word. His word has begun to build up my mind, and now God is able to use that to stand against the attacks of the enemy. There's so many battles, so many things that we go through that, that might be unnecessary because we haven't used the word against Satan. And so I've already done it in my Sunday school class this morning. I'm going to do it to you tonight. I challenge you to read through your Bible this year. I challenge you to take one book of the Bible that interests you and devote a year's worth of study towards it. That doesn't mean you spend 30 minutes every day. It might mean 30 minutes every week. But think about the, the goodness that God can do in your life if you just devote yourself to it. If you take a small book like 1 John, it would only take you 15 to 20 minutes to read through that book. If you read through it once every day for 60 days, I'm telling you, the impact in your life would be unbelievable. After the first 10 days, you're going to see the pattern. You're going to begin to see what John is trying to say. At the end of 20 days, if you've been reading it in the same Bible every day, you're going to know where chapter 2, you're going to know chapter 2 starts on the first column on the second page. You're going to know that in your mind. Can you imagine how helpful that will be whenever you go through a difficult time and you have that Bible emblazoned in your mind to be able to say, you know what? I've got the love of Jesus Christ working in my life. You know what? I've got, I'm, I don't want the love of this world. Get that out of my life, 1 John 2.15. I'm getting rid of that stuff. And so you begin to interact with that word on a day-by-day -day basis. It's going to change your life. And that's how we overcome, by abiding in the word. We have an embarrassment of riches 
today whenever it comes to personal Bible study. I was telling my Sunday school class, you can get online and you can, you can study the, the New Testament in the original Greek and, and pull up keywords and have strong concordance and just be flipping up tabs and looking at all these things. Can, can you imagine the interaction with the Word, what that does into your life whenever it used to be? That, that back whenever John Wycliffe had the Bible translated over into English, that people were burned at the stake for just quoting the Bible in English. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They just quoted it in English, and they burned them at the stake. And now we have the Bible in, in excess. We have it at, at every point we could turn to. You have access to the Word of God. You've got to abide in the Word. You've got to use that sword as you combat the enemy. We've got to go against the trend of biblical illiteracy in our day. We can't expect to overcome unless we soak up the word of God into our spirit. Sister Regina, if you would come. The key to overcoming is waking up and realizing that you are in a battle for your soul. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. This is not time to be lukewarm. This is not time to, to serve God with one foot in the door and the other foot out in the world. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 that we don't have to be outwitted by Satan's devices because we know where he's going to attack. We know where and when and how the things that he is going to do against us. And we've been granted the promise of the overcomer. That if we wear that armor, if we live with a sober mind, if we abide in the word, we've got promises. We've got promises that we can live to. We've got promises that we can live to. We're going to eat of the tree of life. We're not going to be hurt in the second death. We're going to receive a new name in heaven. We're going to have power over the nations. Our name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. But it's an if-then proposition. Because there's a responsibility for you. You've got to put on that armor. You've got to make sure that your mind is clearly focused on God. You've got to abide in that word. The Spirit is wanting to work in our lives. It's wanting to work in our lives. Don't be too busy. Don't be too busy with the things of this world. God has filled us with His Spirit. 1 John 5 and 4, it says that whoever overcomes is, has to be born of God. We know what being born again looks like. We know we can quote John 3 and 5. You've got to be born of the water. You've got to be born of the Spirit. You've been called to a high calling, but God has filled you with His Spirit to empower you. Whenever we're filled with the Holy Ghost, we become empowered by God to fight against the enemy. He cannot stand against us because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And so I think tonight... I think, I think it's time for a little bit of spiritual warfare to go on in our lives. And not just tonight, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But we need to get on our knees and say, God, I need you to focus me like never before. 
God, I need you to put that armor on my life. Let's stand. God, I need you to let your word dwell in me richly. Because I can't do this on my own. I can't fight this battle on my own. I've got to have you working in my life. These altars are open.